When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Aspen Brown, a host of the channel, currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming, studying cultural history, focusing on environment, science, and knowledge. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Egan about his new book, Unsettling Nature, Ecology, Phenomenology, and the Settler Colonial Imagination, published by the University of Virginia Press in 2022, a part of their Under the Sign of Nature Explorations in Eco-Criticism series. Uh, Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aspen. It's a, it's a lovely honor to be here. Well, that's great to hear. And um, thank you for, for uh, agreeing to the interview. And um, just to, to start us out um, and, and get our listeners kind of up to speed, would you mind uh, giving a little bit of a background about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I am an assistant professor at uh, the Pacific Northwest College of Art, which is a small uh, fine art and design college that's um, actually now part of Willamette University. So our campus is in Portland, Oregon, and Willamette is a little uh, further south in Salem. Um, but I teach at PNCA. I teach in the graduate school there, uh, the Halley Ford School of Graduate Studies. And my main hub, my main teaching hub, is in a master's program called Critical Studies, which is something of a, a mix between critical theory and cultural studies. Um but I've also been teaching a bit in some of the fine art master's programs. So things like visual studies and applied craft and design. Um, I'm actually an artist myself. I'm a dancer and a performance maker as well. Um, so working in this kind of collaborative and interdisciplinary space is super exciting for me. Um, so I really, really enjoy it there. Um, but of course, my, my main training is actually as a literature scholar. I did my PhD in English at Princeton. Um, and most of my work, actually all of my work to date has, has been, uh, on literature, mostly on 20th century Anglophone literature. Um, but increasingly I've kind of been working more and more on, uh, literature and translation. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. 
Wonderful. And um, that sets us up really well for um, talking about, about your book itself. Um, how did you how did you get into this particular subject of unsettling nature and um, you know just do you want to do you want to give us a bit bit of background on that? Sure. Yeah. So it, it it to me it feels like it has a long prehistory in some ways. Um, it very much started uh, as as a dissertation project. Um, so yeah, as I said when I when I was in grad school, well, I didn't say this, but uh, in graduate school, my main sort of broad area of focus was 20th century Anglophone literature. Um, and more specifically, I was kind of, I was working on post-colonial literature and uh, post-colonial novels, uh, and especially on, on the African novel. Um, and that's that's kind of how I, I, entered, I entered graduate school with those as my main focuses. But as I was in graduate school, I became increasingly interested in the environmental humanities. Um, so I started grad school in 2010. Uh, and this this was kind of a moment when, uh, when environmental humanities was really kind of coming into its own. Um, of course, eco-criticism and environmental philosophy had been around for a long time, um, had been sort of developing and growing since at the, at the least since the 1960s, late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, so it had been around for a long time, but I kind of felt like in the 2000s and early 2010s, it was really gaining more visibility, um, gaining more legitimacy, more institutional support. And so there was just a lot of energy, a lot of burgeoning uh, excitement uh, in the environmental humanities. So this was the time when like new, new materialism was really big. Uh, the affective turn was happening. Things like object-oriented ontology and speculative realism were, were becoming big as well. Um, so yeah, it was a very exciting time. And I just kind of got caught up in it. So when it came time to devise a dissertation project, I was still interested in the post-colonial side of things. And so I really wanted to find a way to bring my post-colonial interests in, into line somehow with the new environmental and humanities interest. And so the project that I originally designed for the dissertation was organized around this concept of the environmental imaginary. And for me, that term, environmental imaginary, it designated this kind of multifocal matrix that you could use for understanding how a particular group or society um, sort of conceptualized not just what nature or the environment was, um, but also how that group conceptualized the nature of the relationship between humans and uh, humans and the environment. Um and this was very much an ideological formation. That's kind of what interested me. Um, it was at once political, it was a sociocultural, it was juridical, it was also philosophical and aesthetic. So not only dealing with issues of, of like who gets access to what land, when, under what conditions, and for what uses, um, all of those questions, but also questions about, well, what are we supposed to feel when we encounter or when we have an encounter with the natural world. Um, in, in the Western environmental imaginary, we have all these aesthetic categories for talking about those experiences, things like the beautiful and the picturesque and the sublime. All of those are kind of part of an, an affective inheritance that we have. Um, 
but it's also very much about how the, how landscapes are supposed to look. Um, when we think about, for example, uh, the word wilderness, many of us in the in the West to this day probably still imagine a landscape that's completely bereft of any kind of human habitation, um, even any kind of human mark like roads or, or power lines or things like that. It's not really possible. Those, those spaces don't really exist anymore, but um, nonetheless, those are, those are often the kinds of things that we imagine. Um, but any, in any case, the, the dissertation was in part about sort of de- defining this concept of the environmental imaginary, but even more importantly for me, it was about, sort of investigating how competing environmental imaginaries come to bear on individual landscapes. And so for me, the sort of the best way into that was to think about settler coloniality. Um, And so the plan was, originally at least, uh, to identify two or three different settler colonial sites and then do a kind of comparative reading of literary and other texts to sort of to do a, to do a kind of a comparative analysis of settler and indigenous environmental imaginaries, that was the idea anyway. Uh, but as many of us find, these projects that we set out to do change quite a bit um, as we actually pursue them, and that was definitely the case for me. Um, and there were there were a few things that actually happened in the early days of research that kind of caused me to shift gears a bit. Um, but the, maybe the most important one was that as I started to read more broadly in eco-criticism and specifically in American eco-criticism or North American eco-criticism, I noticed that there was this kind of overriding tone of idealism or optimism, um, especially about nature writing, um, as if the very act of writing about nature or celebrating nature um, or doing some kind of scholarly engagement with nature writing, that all of these things were somehow inherently virtuous or good. Um, and I was kind of surprised by this. And at first, I, I thought to myself that this was probably linked to um, a, a claim for legitimacy or an implicit kind of claim for legitimacy. At the time, I think that a lot of eco-critics were, you know, there wasn't, there, it wasn't a fully established discipline yet. And there was a desire to, uh, to sort of prove that human humanistic inquiry had the capacity to contribute something meaningful to environmental discourse, something that the sciences couldn't do or were not able to do. Um, so yeah, I thought I thought about it as as a kind of implicit claim to legitimacy. But as someone who was coming from a post-colonial background, I also couldn't help but feel really skeptical uh, of this of this kind of uh, this kind of rhetoric because it really made me think about the long history of American exceptionalism. Um, so yeah, whenever whenever I encountered someone writing about um, like the the great vastness of the American West as somehow emblematic of the American spirit, or other other less explicit ways of extolling the virtues of America of American nature. Um, whenever I encountered these things, all I could really think about was like manifest destiny, uh, American empire, and again this this long long standing rhetoric of of American exceptionalism. And so this was kind of the moment when I. I, I started focusing more on settler 
writing um, than on the the initial idea of doing comparative readings of of settler and, and indigenous environmental imaginaries. So I started reading more and more settler literature. And one of the things that I noticed was that there was a great deal of or there were a lot of examples of this kind of um, this kind of celebratory rhetoric. A lot of settler writers were talking about um, how how fruitful an American landscape was, how it really provided for them and sustained uh, settler settler livelihoods. Um, but what was a little surprising to me as I read more of this literature was that it seemed like there were just as many instances. Um, of, of more like more anxious depictions of nature, um, anxious in the sense of uh, depicting nature as potentially dangerous or uh, unforgiving. And so, yeah, there was a lot of oscillation between these two different ways of representing the natural world. And I started to read this oscillation as itself an expression of settler anxieties about belonging as if to say that whenever nature presented itself as um, welcoming and fruitful and productive, and again, sustaining of settler livelihood, um, you, it could be construed as a kind of welcoming, a kind of um, affirmation of legitimacy. But on the other hand, anytime nature like reared its head and showed itself to be dangerous and amoral, um, whenever lightning struck and you know, burned your barn down or burned your house down or when hail came and destroyed your crop, when when anything like this happened, it could be construed as just the opposite, as a challenge to legitimacy. And I found that a lot of settler literature, at least in its representations of the natural world, uh, sort of existed in this really anxious space. And so that was kind of, that was what led me to the concept that would ultimately hold the dissertation together. And the dissertation was called The Ecological Uncanny. Um, that was kind of the central concept. And even though I was really still interested in settler coloniality, and even though I was still writing about settler colonial histories, um, the the project really ended up being more about like the kind of psychodynamics of settler colonial belonging. Um, so yeah, so when I then, you know, after I finished the PhD, a couple years later, I returned to the project with the idea of, of transforming it into a book. And I kept on thinking to myself that I really wanted to find a way to bring the settler colonial critique out more fully, um, because it had kind of receded into the background a bit. And I wanted it to be kind of front and center, because that felt like the more urgent idea. Um, and yeah, so I, I kind of struggled with that for a while. And it wasn't really until I came up with a provisional title for the book, which ended up being the title of the book, Unsettling Nature, it wasn't until I, I hit on that phrase that I had a sort of conceptual way in. So for me, that phrase, unsettling nature, um, has a kind of twofold meaning. It's not only about unsettling representations or uncanny representations of the natural world. Um, it's also about how those unsettling representations can be construed as actively unsettling settler colonial claims to belonging. Um, so yeah, once I had that phrase that linked those two things, um, I felt like I had a logic that I could use as a way to like reinvent or reorganize and rewrite uh, the dissertation as a book. So yeah, that's kind of the, the long history of how, uh, how I came to write this book. Um, 
Yeah. That's so awesome. And, and uh, like my mind is swimming with all of the things that you said, because there's so much, um, there's so much there and there's so much for us to, to talk about. Uh, but kind of to lead us in, I, I'm curious if it might be helpful for, for the listeners who, who aren't as familiar with these, um, these ideas to define the difference between colonialism and settler colonialism. Sure. So, I mean, maybe a simple way of thinking about the difference between colonialism and settler colonialism is that colonialism tends to be more extractive, at least in my in my understanding. Um, the reason I'm focusing on settler colonialism is that settler colonialism is really about um, it's really about a kind of homemaking. It's when one group. Um, the arrivants, we can call them, or the settlers, when they arrive in a place uh, and they have some sort of logic for claiming that land as their own. Um, and that claiming of the land is also sort of paired with what Patrick Wolf calls a logic of elimination, um, oftentimes. Uh, so it's a logic of removing indigenous populations from the land. And in each case of, of, of settler colonialism, there's a slightly different logic for how and why this happens. Um, but that's for me, that's the basic difference, is that in settler colonialism, there is actually a population that moves onto the land, removes, uh, removes the indigenous population, um, and 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 claims that land usually for agriculture and builds a new home there. So it's it's more fundamentally about displacement, whereas colonialism, you know, quote unquote, straight colonialism, tends to be more about ex- extractive relationships. Um, yeah, that's that's the simplest way to think about it. I think. Yeah, no, that's super helpful, and I think it's 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 helpful to to lead into this idea of homeliness and um, and. Uh, really the power of of your book um and i guess i mean moving on from there one of your one of your big uh phrases or 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 keywords that um that frames your book is the coloniality of nature um would you like to get into kind of deconstructing that idea yeah that's a great that's a great segue actually um and one thing i'll say is that you know, when I was talking about the twofold meaning of that phrase, unsettling nature, for me, this is kind of a third, a third resonance in it. It's not just unsettling representations of nature that unsettle settler colonial belonging. Um, but there's also this, this, uh, echo of unsettling the coloniality of nature as well. Um, so yeah, let me talk about, I'll talk about that concept. And actually maybe before I even talk about coloniality of nature, uh, I should just back up a little bit and say something about coloniality, uh, yeah, because that's a term. Yeah, and it's a term that's specific to decolonial theory, and I imagine that not everyone will be familiar with it. So it, it deserves it deserves some language uh, around it just on its own. Um, so yeah, col- coloniality. What is coloniality? Coloniality is one of the key analytics in decolonial theory. Um, and it's closely related to another analytic that is probably more familiar, and that's the analytic of modernity. Um, and so maybe I'll say a little bit about modernity, actually. I keep on backing up. Uh, <laughs> no, um, I love it. But in my own understanding of decolonial theory, one of the major contributions of that field um, as kind of a, as a whole 
is to offer an alternative history of modernity. So the usual history of modernity will say something like, modernity began in the European 17th and 18th centuries with the Enlightenment, um, that it really kind of kicked into gear in the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution, which made then all the various intensifications of technological modernity in the 20th century possible. Um, that's the usual history. And you, you'll notice that in that history of modernity, it's entirely contained within Europe. It's a European invention. Um, it's European a philosophical invention or a philosophical revolution and a scientific revolution um, that is entirely the product of European genius. But decolonial theorists say no. Um, in fact, modernity began much earlier and it didn't begin in Europe. Um, in fact, it began it began as early as the late 15th century um, with the first European expeditions to the New World. Um, so yeah, it started in the 15th century and in the Caribbean. And the reason that it's important to move that date back a couple of centuries is that it is only after the advent of New World imperialism or in the centuries after, the, the couple centuries directly after the advent of New World imperialism, that we witness this massive global reorganization of power. Um, and it's a reorganization of material and economic power, of political power, of social power. Um, and it's all, recent, or it's all centered on Europe. So this is where the coloniality comes in. If it's the case, as decolonial thinkers argue, that modernity begins with the advent of new world imperialism, then there is no way to think about the modernity that we have. There's no way to think about the modernity that we have without also thinking about the history of imperialism. They just go hand in hand. They're inextricably linked. Um, and so this is why like decolonial scholars like Walter Mignolo uh, will often explicitly link these concepts together. So he won't talk about modernity. He'll talk about modernity slash coloniality. Um, the whole idea is that they just, they just come together. Um, so that word coloniality is a word that serves as a persistent reminder that the history of modernity and the history of, of imperialism are just inextricably bound together. Um, now, in the, the literature of decolonial theory, scholars often use the word coloniality um, in relation to a certain concept or institution. So we get things like the, colonial, the coloniality of power uh, or the coloniality of being, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we get to Heidegger later. Um, and then there's also uh, the coloniality of gender. That's another major one. And in each of these cases, it's it's tempting to read these phrases as meaning something like each of, each of these terms, power, being, and gender, um, that each of these terms are somehow colonialist. Um, and that there is some truth to that, but I think that the point is more about understanding that coloniality has affected some kind of reorganization of whatever concept is being centered. So just as an example, um, when Maria Lugones talks about the coloniality of gender, on my reading at least, 
The point is less that that term gender is coming out of the colonial matrix. Of course, it does come out of the colonial matrix. The the word that we have for gender, uh, an English word, um, but also that word in, in other European languages, comes out of the colonial matrix, and so do all of our associations and and sort of political ideologies about gender. All of that does come out of the colonial matrix of power. But the point is, I think, more about how the colonial matrix of power, as it extends into new communities, it actively reconfigures what gender means in those communities. So it transforms what it means to talk about maleness or masculinity. It transforms what it means to talk about femaleness or femininity. Um, It transforms how those concepts get mapped onto the world around us. And it also transforms the relationship between those two things. I mean, it's still, it's like this very binary gender notion um, is also a part of the coloniality of gender. so yeah, there are new there are new hierarchies established, new hierarchies of power. So any community that is living through or has lived through a kind of re- reorganization of gender relations is living under conditions of coloniality. Um, so that's kind of how the, the 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 term coloniality seems to function in a lot of decolonial thinking. Um, okay, so with that in mind, then what what does it mean to talk about the coloniality of nature? I think the first thing I should say is that this is not a term of my own invention. This is a term that has popped up here and there in the decolonial literature. Um, usually people don't define it very formally or even clearly. I think, to my knowledge, the first example of this term was, or at least in print anyway, uh, was in a, a, an introduction to a special journal article or a special journal um issue. Uh, It was an introduction by Walter Mignolo, and he was using it to refer to someone else's work. And that scholar didn't use it in her own work. So it was just kind of a casual use. Um, Some other people have used it specifically and defined it more fully. There's a a historian named Hector Alimoda who has written about um, the political economy of Latin American extractivism and specifically linked extractivism to this phrase, the coloniality of nature. But for me personally, the the scholars whose work has been most influential for thinking about the coloniality of nature um, have not actually explicitly used that term. So for example, um, Maria, uh, sorry, Macarena Gomez Barres um, has an amazing book called The Extractive Zone, um, which very much like Alimoda is trying to link ex- uh was, is is focused on Latin American extractivism, but in her book, she's she's specifically linking extractivism to this longer history of coloniality, and she's explicitly linking it to decolonial theory. So that was a really important book for me. Another important example um, is is also Walter Mignolo. Actually, um, it's not his most recent book, but it's a book that he wrote in collaboration with Catherine Walsh called "On Decoloniality." And in a section in the latter half of the book where he, uh, he, that he wrote, he talks about how the concept of quote unquote capital M man uh, and the concept of nature, how these two things were sort of born together um, in, the, in the crucible of coloniality. 
Um, and here he's drawing very heavily on the work of the great Sylvia Winter. Um, so Sylvia Winter um, has this amazing, epically titled essay that I think many people are familiar with. It's called, um, the first part of it anyway, is called Unsettling the Coloniality of Being slash Power slash Truth slash Freedom. It's totally epic um, and amazing. But in this essay, she makes uh, a very powerful and convincing case that against Foucault, who thought that the concept of man was invented in the 18th century, um, Sylvia Winter says that it was actually in the, uh, again, and this is the, the decolonial move, it was not invented in the 18th century, it was invented in the 15th century. Um, the man was invented in the 15th century. And this invention was... I swear we're going to get back to the coloniality of nature. <laughs> um, but the invention of man in this case happened in sort of counterpoint to uh, ways of managing different categories of subhumanness. Um, so this was the beginning of the African slave trade. Um, and also at the advent of New World imperialism, Europeans were encountering many different indigenous groups and trying to figure out what to do with them. Um, and in their like ways of categorizing different people, both black Africans and indigenous people were considered to be kind of subhuman categories, um, or they were, they were said to occupy these categories of subhumanness and they were not the same category. They were different and there was different language to talk about these different categories, but regardless against these categories of subhumanness, there was the sort of necessary invention of white European man as the sort of epitome of humanness. Um, and so this is this is like the the short version of how the very concept of man was invented um, at the end of the 15th century in relationship to these sort of subhuman forms of of Black Africanness and indigeneity. So that's Sylvia Winter, but Walter Mignolo sort of takes this idea and extends it further and says that in addition to measuring white Western man against these other forms of subhumanness, um, in addition to that polarity, there is also the polarity of man versus nature. Um, and here nature was a sort of thoroughly Christianized concept. Um, it was based in the theology that God had created nature for the solace and benefit of man um, who could then claim possession of that land uh, and that land was in turn feminized under the gaze of the Adamic patriarch. All this stuff kind of, you know, here's here's the coloniality of gender again. It all kind of meshes together. Um, but but the point is that this sort of this sort of dynamic or dialectic between man and nature that was also sort of not not exactly arising at that time, but was being formalized um, and strengthened. Um, that this is sort of the basis for what we could call the coloniality of nature. And it describes how this whole strain of a kind of Christianized or theologized way of thinking about the natural world uh, and man's, man's quote unquote, proper relation to it, um, of how this is, this too is bound up with this long history of modernity and coloniality. Um, so yeah, I hope that explains something about this concept, coloniality of nature, um, that that certain ways of thinking about 
nature that we find even in, in American transcendentalist writing, um, that there's there's some really important and I think disturbing relations to this much longer history of modernity coloniality that decolonial thinkers have been pointing us toward. Yeah, that's amazing. And and this idea of um, of coloniality in terms of like reconfiguring really makes sense to me um, in ter- when, when we're talking about the settler colonial agenda of, of coming in and understanding a place to to make it their their home or or, or, or find a find a belonging. And so I mean one of your one of your uh, major points throughout the book is about is about the idea of like homeliness and and what that means to to this this greater conversation. Mm-hmm. Would you like to speak a little bit about that um, in, in terms of what it accomplishes within this this greater narrative? Absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're really lining things up for me, Aspen. This is great. Um, and it's, it's a, it really is the, the last big piece of the puzzle for this project, this question of, of homeliness um, and homemaking, homecoming, all these things. Um, and so, yeah, to kind of connect, connect the dots between coloniality, the coloniality of nature, and this question of, of home, um, I think maybe the best way to start talking about it might be to offer another kind of broad strokes history. So I've kind of given this this reforming reformation of the history of modernity and kind of broad strokes, and um, I can offer another one. I'm I'm not a historian at all, and I'm sure that real historians will be annoyed with <laughs> the broad strokes that I paint with. So please don't angry get angry with me. Don't at me, historians. Um, <laughs> But you, you you have my blessing if that means anything from the lowly position of a master's student in in the in a history department. Well, that that's very meaningful. I will I will take that. Thank you. Um, but yeah, the thing I was thinking of uh, was the history of national park creation in the United States. Um, so I think most versions of this history tend to focus on the central debate between conservationism and preservationism, like which one is the most appropriate, which, which is the way that we should think about um, how to, how to sort of cordon off and, and preserve or conserve uh, this, the amazing, the amazing American landscape. Um, And a lot of these histories tend to focus uh, on the key players, pretty much all of whom were wealthy white men so we're talking about like the heads of conservation societies like James Audubon. Um, I also think about people like John Muir, you know, this very famous mountaineer who is also kind of a politician and also kind of a prophet of sorts. Um, so they, they talk a lot about John Muir. They talk about politicians who got involved with legislation. They talk about presidents who took a particular interest in this work, um, all that sort of stuff. But beneath and beyond all this talk about conservation and preservation, I've always felt that one can detect in these debates kind of this underlying strain of romanticism about nature. And it's a romanticism that's kind of mixed up with this nostalgia, uh, which I could only understand as a nostalgia for the frontier or nostalgia for, for this frontier that at the time had, o- had only recently closed. Um, and then, of course, this nostalgia echoes with the strains of 
manifest destiny as well. Um, so quickly we're getting into abstract territory. Um, but, you know, I try to imagine men like John Muir uh, who first came, you know, when they first came upon the places that we now call Yellowstone or Zion or even better Yosemite, um, you know, these are truly, truly astonishing places. They're totally uh, awe-inspiring. Um, and for many of these men, these these places that would later become national parks seemed like wholly spiritualized. They were spiritualized landscaped and spirited with the divine presence. Um, and many of them like explicitly referred to these places as kind of manifestations of paradise on earth. So this kind of Christian par- Christian paradigm of paradise regained. And once you had that kind of language, so once you had this language of like the restoration of the earthly paradise, you had this very powerful justification for taking possession of these landscapes. Because even if you could say, even if you could say something like in the indigenous communities that either lived in these places or made use of them, that they had some kind of claim of natural right. Um, And I don't think at the time there was anyone at really advocating for this. Um, but even if they were, it still wouldn't have been enough because the one thing that indigenous peoples of North America were not is Christian. And because they weren't Christian, they couldn't be understood to be the true inheritors of the divine paradise. And for this reason, it had to be transferred into the hands of the sons of God. Um, and so with this kind of like history, I'm not, I'm really not trying to suggest that this argument was ever made super explicitly or that this was cited as the primary reason politically for establishing national parks. Um, I'm just trying to say that there's a, there's this kind of ideological history that runs parallel to the history of conservation. And, you know, if we think again about figures like John Muir, who were politically involved, but at the same time writing these sort of prophetic tracts, um, we sort of have to understand them as converging in really, really important and sometimes disturbing ways. Um, so yeah, all of this is bound up with what I've been calling the coloniality of nature. Um, but the thing, the other thing that's actually really important to look at here is the structure of that subtler colonial narrative of paradise regained because there's something weird and paradoxical in it from from the perspective of history um we know that europeans only arrived in the new world very recently um and you know a lot of these things that i'm talking about with with regard to national parks are in the united states west um so europeans arrived in the west um even later than that but the very idea that these Western landscapes were manifestations of paradise worked in this odd way to kind of help re-script their arrival in these places as something more like a return, a return from exile. Because if you're if you're Christian or for Christians, this idea of arriving at paradise or being restored to the earthly paradise, um, it's a kind of primordial homecoming. It's, it's a coming home to the original place of inhabitants where Adam and Eve lived in the garden prior to the fall. And then after the fall, of course, that placed humanity in a permanent state of exile. 
So in this logic, European settlers could say, well, you know, yeah, we've our, our people have lived in Europe all this time, but really we've been living in exile. We've been living um, in, a, in a state of alienation from our home. And so here we are arriving in the United States, arriving on the West, uh, in these Western landscapes. And here we find this manifestation of paradise, which is itself a sort of originary home. It provided this weird logic where arrival was actually the same thing as homecoming. Um, so yeah, I'll just say it again, that European settler arrival wasn't really an arrival at all. Um and that's kind of all the justification that you needed to make a claim, not just to possession of a landscape, um, but yeah, to make this claim of a kind of originary belonging. It's not the settler's new home. It's not as though the settler was at home somewhere else and now took possession of this place and made it a home. It's actually that this place was always their most fundamental, even ontological home from the very beginning. Um so yeah, that's the kind of weird paradox of of like the settler colonial narrative of arrival, um, and I guess the the last thing that I would say here, which is kind of weird because it's the first thing that I address in the book actually, um, so it's kind of funny to be coming at it from this uh, from this angle, um, but anyway, the last thing that I wanted to mention is that there's a, a distressingly close resemblance between this, this narrative of settler colonial homecoming um, and something that in the book I call the ecological homecoming narrative. Um, and there's a lot to say about the ecological homecoming narrative, but just to try to keep things simple, um, I'll say this, that basically, whenever someone makes a claim about the advantages or the virtues of getting back to nature or coming home to nature or um, restoring, restoring our sense of earthly belonging to nature, something like this. Whenever these kinds of claims are made, they are invoking the ecological homecoming narrative. This is something that I see I've seen kind of everywhere in public discourse, and I've also seen it in a lot of scholarly discourse as well. Uh, of course, scholars are tend to be much more careful in the way that they sort of reiterate this narrative. They have different um, and slightly more critical ways of doing it, but nonetheless, it shows up in a lot of a lot of strange and surprising guises. But the basic logic that I've I've kind of drawn out of this ecological homecoming narrative. Is, is this idea that the only way, and this is kind of reductionist, but, but just bear with me, like the only way that, we, that humans can save ourselves and save the planet is not to put all of our eggs in the technology basket. Like technology is not going to save us. Science alone is not going to save us. If we have any hope of stopping climate change or reversing the sixth extinction or somehow intervening in the various unfolding ecological catastrophes of our time, if we're, if we're to have any chance of doing these things, there's something more foundational that we have to do first. And that's that we have to sort of return 
to ourselves somehow. It's this idea that we've, and we, by we, I think I'm referring more specifically to, um, this is again, the Western environmental imaginary, um, but we've been alienated from the natural world for so long um, that now we need to sort of restore our entanglement with the flesh of the world. Or maybe I could paraphrase uh, eco-criticism's very favorite philosopher, Martin Heidegger. Um, he would say something like, we need to relearn how to dwell in uh, we need to relearn how to dwell in the nearness of our own being. Um, so this, there's this lang- language of needing to restore ourselves to ourselves um, and re- like come home uh, to our dwelling in the flesh of the world, something like this. But what I find most interesting and uh, kind of unsettling about this kind of claim is that when you look at it really carefully... It has the same kind of paradoxical logic that the settler colonial home caring coming narrative has. Um, and the example that I usually point to uh, to sort of describe this paradox is the notion of rewilding. So rewilding is a is a is a term that has a specific meaning in restoration ecology. And I'm not talking about um, ecological rewilding in that sense. I'm talking about it more as as a form of kind of lifestyle branding that has arisen in the last decade or two, um, where rewilding is kind of related to this idea of reconnecting with the earth and with ourselves as sort of earthly creatures. And the whole rewilding brand is kind of built around this idea of getting back to, not just getting back to nature, but getting back to the nature that in fact, we've never actually left. Um, so if I could paraphrase the rewilding logic, it's something like uh, in the West, we've often talked about how alienated we are from nature. Um, and we've talked about it so often that we've come to believe it. We've come to believe that we've actually been able to sort of remove ourselves from the flesh of the world um, and and sort of exist separately from it. But a fact, in fact, we've always been materially enmeshed in this world. Um, And what we need to do is realize the fact of this continuous material enmeshment, um, because if we realize it, then we can finally come back to this place that we never left. And that's the, that's the sort of circular or even paradoxical logic, um, that's kind of operational in rewilding as a sort of lifestyle brand. We need to come back to this place that we never left. And for me, I can't help but hear hear the similarity between um, between this kind of ecological homecoming and settler colonial homemaking, where the first arrival in a place is simultaneously homecoming. They're tied up in the same knot. Um, it's kind of like it's kind of like the Ouroboros or the the snake that's eating its own tail. And for me, I guess the last thing I wanted to say about this is that. It's not just that these kinds of narratives have a have a a similar structural logic. It's not just that there's some sort of isomorphism that makes them similar. I think what's really interesting is about is the fact that because they are so similar and because they are isomorphic, they map onto each other in in sometimes almost invisible ways, such that I would. I would actually make the claim that whenever, like in the United States, for instance, whenever a settler 
makes the makes the claim for needing to get back to nature or desire to get back to nature or come home to nature that in that very phrasing even if they're not conscious of it there's this subtle tie to a settler colonial logic of belonging that is simultaneously being voiced um, in that desire to return it's almost indistinguishable but more and more, I, I just hear I, I hear in, in those phrases, get back to nature, um, a sort of reiteration or re-upping um, of a claim to settler belonging. Uh, so that's kind of, that's, that's my way of sort of tying all these ideas together. The coloniality of nature, um, this notion of nature as a primordial home, uh, kind of come together both in the settler colonial history, but also in this very common um, way of talking about getting back to nature. Yeah, I'll stop there. And, <laughs> no, thank you. There's so much. And it's super validating uh, in, in terms of a lot of my research is focused on these, these, these ideologies within the American West and hearing that these logics are kind of structure in this way is really, really interesting. And then the fact that you can go back and find a historical genealogy before the Enlightenment that informs the Enlightenment um, is something that I have I have also been grappling with. And it's, it's just really validating to, to hear these kind of um, ruptures in, in the traditional narrative. Um, and and one, one other thing that I think goes, goes into, into all of this um, discourse that you've been talking about is it starts it it, it kind of start kicks off um, in your book with with this really beautiful telling of um, when you when you moved into a, a house in Portland you you realized your one of your Oregon white oaks was 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 dying and and the cause of it was um, was English ivy and um, that picture of violence created this this imagery for you that goes into what you were talking about with with Heidegger and the the primordial dwelling um, of in the world and and how it's a it's a gathered landscape that enables an ecological thinking that departs on a violent act exclusion excluding the wretched of the earth in terms of like Fanon um, excluding a wretched of the earth. Um, a home in the world and reducing it to the mere, mere background of material, material of environmental materialism and and I don't know like is is building in violence in that way is is really profound and I don't did I get that right? I think so. Yeah, that was actually a a, a brilliant summary of that that whole thing. And you were I think you were really describing well um, the notion of the coloniality of being. Um, and maybe we, we can talk about Heidegger more or or not, but uh, but just to mark that, I think that what you're describing really beautifully is is what a lot of decolonial thinkers, as well as uh, some some thinkers in Black studies as well, um, their critique of Heidegger um, based on this notion of the coloniality of of being. Wonderful, and I mean, and 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 going off of that as well, um, another part of your book. I think we'll leave Heidegger. We'll put a pin in Heidegger and and let the readers, most let, let let our listeners get the book so they can read more about it because it it's such an interesting chapter. Um, but just kind of 
bringing it out even farther, um, one one key that I really found interesting was um, in in your at first excursus, um, and and it was um, had to do with ecological realism, and then your your use of affect as ecological realism, and you define affect in such an interesting, nuanced way where it's the key um, to understanding ecological realism in the, and, and affect taking a nod from Jameson, I think, um, is, is in opposition to feelings and it, it, which feelings possess language while affects evade language. And then this affect creates a, a doubling of per perception um, that, that creates a literal invisible that imperceptibly creates uh, this this imagination, I think, it, it, I think that's what what you're saying here, and and I'm I'm just really interested in this idea of of how we can understand the coloniality of nature within this ecological realism, with its affective view, along with the imagination projected as well. Mm -hmm. If that's a question, I think I can turn it into a question. That would be wonderful. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. It's, the observations are often uh, a more useful point of departure anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe I would I preface my 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 response just by saying a little bit about the the structure of the book as a whole, just so that listeners Perfect. That have a be... sense of where we're going. So yeah, that would be a really good call. Yeah. So in a lot of what we've been talking about thus far is really uh, it, it's all that much of that is, is about is covered in the introduction. Um, so yeah, the, the introduction is, is kind of a, a big, a big sort of philosophical uh, attempt to draw a lot of these strands together. After the introduction, the book is broken up into two main parts and each part has three chapters followed by a shorter section that I call an excursus. And the excursus is a, is a slightly more philosophical or theoretical piece that tries to draw the threads uh, of the previous three chapters together and sort of um, weave them into something new. Um, so the what you're talking about, Aspen, about ecological realism is the first excursus. So it comes after the first three chapters. Um, and the first three chapters kind of set out um, three three of the main tropes, um, try, trying to expand on three of the main tropes of the book. Um, and those tropes are named in the titles of each of those chapters. So the first chapter is Martin Heidegger and the Coloniality of Nature. Um, so that's about those two things. <laughs> we, don't, we, we put a pin in Heidegger, so I won't say more. Um, <laughs> the second chapter is called uh, Willa Cather and the Homely Metaphysics of Landscape. So in that chapter, I'm trying to understand um, in a little more depth how like modes of perceiving landscape have a tendency to sort of actively transform landscape into this homely space of inhabitants um, that's kind of like this metaphor metaphorical and metaphysical dwelling the third chapter is called dh lawrence and the ecological uncanny and this is where i start talking a little bit more about unsettling representations of nature and how this might relate um, to the unsettling of settler coloniality the unsettling of the coloniality of nature and then we get to ecological realism um, 
And Aspen, I think you, you've you already sort of done a, my job, actually, of summarizing much of what I say in that, in that section. Um, but to sort of res- actually re- start responding to what you were saying, I think that a lot of a lot of um, a lot of the things that I'm taking from the the idea of an, of uh, ecological realism really plays out in the second half of the book. So the second half of the book makes a turn away from the United States context and the U.S. Southwest, um, which is where where both uh, Willa Cather and D.H. Lawrence were writing about. So it turns away from the U.S. Southwest uh, and towards Southern Africa, um, this other, another very important example of settler colonialism. And in those chapters, I am really focused on a tradition that has played out over the 19th and 20th and even into the 21st centuries um, in Southern African letters, both in English and in Afrikaans, um, of the farm novel, the farm novel tradition. And one thing that's really interesting about the farm novel tradition is that there is this kind of contest between the Afrikaner vision the Afrikaner settler vision of Southern Africa and a a settler vision that derives more from the British tradition. And of course, as you might guess, if you know anything about the history of South Africa, especially, but you might guess that the Afrikaner vision um, is very closely tied to what eventually became apartheid. So it's, it's highly racialized um, and it is actually much closer to uh, what we found in, or what we would see in the later 20th century, with the Nazi politics of Blutenboden, like uh, that that policy of the Heimat, uh, which we don't need to go into right now. Um, so that's the Afrikaner tradition of of the farm novel. But there's this other tradition of the farm novel that starts with. Um, Olive Schreiner's really miraculous work, uh, The Story of an African Farm, which she published in the late 19th century. Um, and then I also I also worked through a couple of additional books, um, Doris Lessing's The Grass is Singing, uh, as well as J.M. Coetzee's In the Heart of the Country. And one of the things that I'm kind of plotting out in this like long long 20th century kind of tradition of the farm novel is how what I was talking about earlier, that sort of oscillation between um, idyllic and dystopian kind of representations of nature in settler literature, how this plays out on in the figure of the Southern African farm, which is kind of like the the, the primal scene of white European being and belonging in Southern Africa. Like the farm is the place where, where white South Africans sort of imagine, um, yeah, the sort of, like I said, a kind of primal scene of their belonging. It's a kind of self-enclosed world um, that they control uh, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I wanted to come back to this, this point that you were making about affect um, and the, the question of affect and how affect is related to this kind of doubling that creates creates kind of un, these uncanny or unsettling um, depictions. And this is the affect of this sort of anxiety, this pervading anxiety about belonging, 
Um, and over the course of the 20th century, each of these farm novels that I talk about move toward a kind of progressively apocalyptic vision of nature in revolt. And in post-colonial readings, we t- like you'll typically find a sort of allegorical reading where um, the the revolt of nature is understood to be symptomatic of um, symptomatic of a of a of a sign of Black African uh, revolt or something like this. That nature revolting against the white South African is actually a sign of the rest of the coming restoration of Black lands to African hands. That kind of narrative. And it's a very powerful reading, um, and it's been very influential. Um, but in this book, I'm I'm trying to offer a slightly different reading of this, um, one that doesn't that doesn't read these. Um, how do I say it? It doesn't it doesn't proceed with the assumption that these are that these are necessarily allegorical, um, but that again, in kind of keeping with the psychodynamics of settler belonging, um, when these settler characters have these sort of anxious, sometimes apocalyptic visions of nature revolting, um, that there's this weird way in which it is actually directly their, I don't know how to say this, is that it's their material relationship to the world around them that is contributing to their descent into madness, which then they attribute, um, and not necessarily the the text. The text doesn't make it into an allegory. The character attributes it um, uh, fallaciously, I guess, to another character. So the example that I would give uh, is Doris Lessing. In her book, The Grass is Singing, um, the main carry, the main character, Mary Turner, um, is a is a woman who married young, she married a farmer and ended up living on this farm. Um, and she had all these ideas about how wonderful it was going to be. Of course, when she actually got there, um, she realized that all of her romantic ideas about being closer to nature uh, weren't going to work out. She was actually far too close to nature. Um, and, and she just starts to lose her sense of self. And one of the main tropes in this book is the crying of the cicadas. Like throughout the book, Mary sits on her farm and she hears these cicadas crying out. And this, she like really um, has this, uh, this negative association with this sound. And this sound kind of starts to drive her to madness. Um, but simultaneously, like there's this weird, there's this weird way in which she in her own mind builds this allegorical connection between the creaking of the cicadas and uh, a particular um, servant of hers named Moses. He's essentially a slave on her farm um, who she has this kind of, this kind of violent sexual dynamic with. And again, it's entirely on her side. Um, But in her mind, all of these things kind of get mapped onto one another and so my reading of this book is that you cannot make a, an easy claim that the book itself on the sort of diegetic or narrative level is imposing this narrative that actually suggests that we read um, some sort of formative or symbolic connection between the cicada and Moses. Um, 
it's actually all happening in in Mary's mind, and and that if we were going to read this from an ecological realist perspective, we would understand that it is an actual cicada, at least within the world of the text, it is an actual cicada that is affectively influencing Mary um, and contributing to the particular form of madness that she's experiencing or the particular psychotic break, which she then attributes to Moses. Do you know what I'm saying? So that this is, this is, uh, this is a very different way of reading this text because it, it allows the cicada in the world to be a cicada, if that makes sense. It doesn't have to always get um, allegorically transformed uh, into a symbol of um, like of Africanness in revolt. Uh, I'm not sure this is really a, 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 an adequate response to your observation, but it does kind of bring together these questions of affect, of ecological realism, um, and like the ecological uncanny. And it gives you some idea of how these ideas start to get entangled in the second half of the book. And I appreciate, I, I feel like I'm a dog chasing cars here because there's so much to talk about. Um, and I'm just going back and forth. So thanks thanks for getting us back on track in terms of like looking at the structure of the book and, and how we can, how it all comes together um, in in this way. And, and the way that um, that you talk about the, the way that the colonial uh, uh, allegory um, enables the, the reading for ecological realism. And I was just curious if you wanted to talk more on the e- ecological realism, especially in the point that you make where um, you claim that it dissolves the homely metaphysics of landscape. So do you want to talk a little bit about landscape and, and this, this idea of, of um, how, how ecological realism dissolves this, this kind of ideology? Sure. Um, so maybe for that, I'll, I'll, I'll dip back into the, the, the chapter about Willa Cather, because that's kind of where I talk about um, the, the question of landscape more, most specifically. Um, and again, I'll try to keep it short and not, not get too lost in the weeds here of, the, of all the details. Um, but I'm, in that chapter, I'm really trying to understand, using Willa Cather as an example, just an example, um, but I'm really under, trying to understand the sort of metaphysical dynamics that are at play, not just in literary representations of landscape, but even in the ways that many of us have learned to perceive landscape. Um, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've had some sort of implicit training just growing up, seeing landscape paintings, um, for example. There's, There's a particular aesthetic to it. There's a particular way of framing it. Um, there's a particular way of sort of bringing it into the home as a piece of art. Um, and Willa Cather is doing this in a sort of narratological way, especially in her book, The Professor's House. Um, but what's interesting to me is, is all of these sort of narrative and perceptual strategies of transforming landscape into like into a sort of homely space. And here I really love, uh, there's a phrase from a Southern, he's a a British born historian of Southern Africa, especially of, of Rhodesia. His name is Terence Ranger. And 
he when he talks about um, the the British settlement of the Matopos Hills in Rhodesia, he talks about how it actually took some time for those settlers to sort of imaginatively reconfigure the landscape so that it felt like home, so that it had this sort of affective resonance of home. Um, and he has this beautiful phrase. He talks about how they had to turn it into their own particular beloved place. And so I really like this idea that landscape, like as a topos, as a literary and perceptual topos, if you can say perceptual topos, I'm not sure. Um, but that landscape is actually a matter, like it is very closely bound up with this idea of of making one's own particular place in the world. To become familiar with the landscape is also to become at home in that place. And so what I'm investigating in, in the chapter on, on Willa Cather and the homely metaphysics of landscape is precisely that sort of metaphysical transformation. And in that, in that chapter and in this project more generally, this metaphysics of this landscape metaphysics um, is playing out in settler co- colonial spaces. And so there has to be this metaphysical transformation has to do the double duty of sort of imagining um, histories or the current presence, current and future presence of indigenous populations. It has to sort of imagine it out of the picture. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, and and I'm, 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 the second, the second aspect of that question was about, wasn't just about the, the, about landscape. It was also about something else. Um, I, you know, I don't even remember, but I, the, I, I would say, Right now, the second question I would have, or kind of the follow-up question I would have, is is maybe talk about how the uncanny plays into this. Um, particularly, like it, it seemed like the role of haunting continuously emerged throughout the book. Um, would, would that be a would that be a proper connection to make here? Yes, that's perfect. And actually, that reminds me that what you had asked about earlier was about how um, like ecological realism or ecological uncanny kind of um, dissolves the metaphysics of landscape. So that's, that's perfect actually. Okay. Um, and, and, and this is, this is where I go in the chapter after Cather, when I talk about D.H. Lawrence, this is, this is exactly the subject of that chapter. Um, so D.H. Lawrence was an early 20th century British writer. Um, and he, in the 1920s, he spent a good deal of time in the U S Southwest, specifically in New Mexico. And it was this kind of strange, like biographically, it was this kind of unique period in his life because it was the only place he ever ended up owning property in his life. Um, and it was the only place where he could properly be said to have had a, had a home at least outside of, outside of England. And so there's this kind of this idea that, that DH Lawrence felt most at home at, in the in the U.S. Southwest, but if you read the you know he wrote many many different things while he was there, um, or or after he left the Southwest, he still continued to write some things about the Southwest. But if you read the literature of the of New Mexico, it's hard to imagine that D.H. Lawrence had a lot of like romantic 
homely feelings about New Mexico because so much of what he writes is really unsettling, really disturbing. Um, and I would just give the example of uh, this really incredible novella that he wrote that I, I don't think people read enough, um, but it's called St. Mar. Um, and at the very end of that book, there's this kind of lengthy amazing excursus about this one character, um, a Texan by birth who spent a lot of time in England and then eventually left England because she felt like the old world had had sort of been despirited um, and had lost all of its vitality. This is a very typical sort of Lorenzian theme. Um, but anyway, she returns to the United States in search of a greater sense of vitality. Uh, she goes to Texas and she doesn't find it there. So she keeps moving westward and westward. And she ends up just outside of Santa Fe where she's going to buy or where, where she um, visits a, a ranch that's for sale. And she decides to buy this ranch. And at this point in the book, there's this very strange third person narrative voice that comes in and gives the reader this lengthy history of this ranch. Um and in this history of the ranch, this is where we get like all these unsettling and creepy and uncanny representations of nature as a sort of um, rev- a revolting force or a force that is actively revolting against its owners. Um, and I won't go into all the details there, but the long and the short of it is that this character, um, Lou Witt is her name, and she eventually decides that she's going to purchase this this ranch. And on the one hand, the reader's like, why would you do that? This is a terrifying place. Like this, this is going to destroy you. But Lou Witt's whole reasoning for this is, is that her idea about what the American landscape is or what it should be has absolutely nothing to do with possession. And so to purchase this land is kind of a it's a it is a it is a financial transaction but she doesn't imagine herself as coming into a relationship of ownership with this landscape and the entire prehistory of this ranch had always been conditioned on this this relationship of settler possession her whole thing is that again affectively she has no investment in feeling like she belongs to this place or feeling like this place belongs to her. The only thing that's important to her, or at least as what she, what she says um, to her interlocutors, the only thing that's important to her is the way that this particular place in its complex and kind of haunting spirit of place, how that kind of invigorates her being. So this is kind of my long way of, of coming back to the question Um and saying that, well, for Lawrence, he's kind of re-scripting the very idea of home, not as a place of like ontological density. This is an idea that comes out of um, Gaston Bachelard, a French, a French philosopher, who comes up, has this phrase um, that defines home as a kind of felicitous space, meaning that home is the place where you are more fully in being. Home is a place of greater ontological density. Um, so Lawrence is saying that home, the very notion of home, is definitely a place where you can be more fully in being, but it is not a place of belonging. 
And so for me, that's the, that's the sort of unsettling disconnect that I find in Lawrence. Home is a place of being without belonging. I think it's very hard to imagine for most of us an, a notion of home that does not include some form of belonging. And yet I think that's what he's asking us to think about. And for me, because it's so literally and figuratively unsettling to imagine home as a place of being without belonging um, and to really attend to the ecological realities um, that are disturbing, potentially disturbing or amoral or unforgiving or that that pose a threat to your livelihood, um, to really attend to those ecological realities um, is the same thing or is bound up in what you were describing earlier as the sort of dissolution of the the homely metaphysics of landscape. So home as a place of being without belonging is a place where landscape is not homely. It is not, it is not metaphysically um, understood to be a dwelling or a primordial dwelling, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, I want to jump to maybe excursus two at this point, and and this is where you introduce your idea of exophenomenology compared with ecophenomenology. Um, it, and is is that essentially what you're saying in terms of recognizing um, recognizing this beingness and non in in not belonging uh, with with your idea of exophenomenology? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, and it, it really, the putting exophenomenology at the very end does kind of bookend or bracket this whole idea um, or the whole book, because one of the things that a lot of environmentally minded thinkers like to like to talk about is how that prefix eco um, like stems from the Greek oikos, which is variously translated as, as home or house. Um, in Greek, it has multiple meanings that I don't need to go into. Um, but it's eco-phenomenology then becomes a sort of phenomenology of the dwelling. Um, we don't necessarily need to understand dwelling uh, as literally a house, but as a kind of metaphysical or primordial dwelling place. Um, so with exo, I was trying to suggest that instead of an environmental philosophy or an eco-criticism that continues to think so much in terms of, of homeliness and homecoming and dwelling and using all this kind of language, that it would be interesting to develop something like an exo-phenomenology, where exo is really about the phenomenology of the outside. Um, so rather than the, the, in the domestic space, um, it's a phenomenology of the outside. It's a phenomenology that would be more curious about, um, it would be more curious about difference. It would be more curious about, you know, alterity. Um, it would be more curious about how, how even an individual is not quite, uh, is not quite, uh, doesn't quite map onto oneself. Like there's something, there's something in myself that is actually other to myself. Um, now this has, this has uh, important um, predecessors and people like Sartre who have already kind of written about um, the sort of the alterity of the self and, and stuff like that. Um, but my, my point is to try to bring into environmental thinking um, uh, just more curiosity about 
what it is to be other than what one is. If that makes sense, it's like the very it's the very basic of basics of ethics, but it's a different kind of ethics that I tend to than I tend to see um, in a lot of environmental writing, which has more to, I think comes more from a kind of deep ecology background, where the ethics is just kind of a blanket. Um, a, a you know I'm being reductionist here, but it's a blanket kind of statement about. Um, the values or the va- the intrinsic value of all forms of life. It's not that I don't believe that. Um, it's just that I think that that kind of is a, that kind of philosophy or that kind of ethics is still imbued with this, um, with just not enough criticality, not enough recognition of difference. Um, it turns everything into the same simply by virtue of saying that every everything is equally valid or something like that. And it is equally valid. I'm not saying that. Um, I'm just saying that it's an ethics that would kind of like Emmanuel Levinas that would force us to spend more time reckoning with that which is fundamentally or radically different from us and not turn it into something that feels cozier or feels like it could belong in our home, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And um, it, it, makes a whole lot of sense and and it feels like this is kind of a also you're you're getting back to you're 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 trying to de- deconstruct the the um eco crit kind of materialism of the primordial landscape to to something different and something that is more project is is more on each individual rather than than the exterior landscape is that would that would that be along this the the right line of thinking i think so yeah yeah okay okay perfect perfect well this is this has been so fantastic and and i have so many more questions i i have one last question before we get to our our final traditional question and it's more of a logistics logistical question about the book that i always like to get at is you have so many wonderful especially like literary um examples and and case studies that that you get into um and obviously you're a lit scholar so that that makes a lot of sense but how did you how did you decide on what sources you were actually going to use in the in the end that's a great question and i think that the answer is maybe slightly um I don't know. I don't want to say disappointing, but it really was in a lot of cases, it was really um, it was just kind of happenstance. So when a lot of these ideas were sort of I mean, they've been building building for me in a lot of ways since before graduate school. Um, But I remember that that when I was in my coursework, there was a class where we read Willa Cather's book, The Professor's House. It was a course called something like Exilic Time. Um, and so we were thinking a lot about the question of exile. And that book really spoke to me. Um, and so when it came came to the decision that I made later about focusing on settler literature, um, and at the time I was thinking a lot about landscape, Willa Cather was the perfect example. Um, something similar happened with D.H. Lawrence in that same class uh, we didn't read any D.H. Lawrence. I don't think that a lot of people read Lawrence anymore um, in in school. But but I remember my professor was talking about the ending of the rainbow 
um, one of his his major works, and she said something about like uh, the apocalypse of nature, and that kind of got my mind going. And so I started reading more more D. H. Lawrence, um, and thought I might write about one of those books. But then I discovered Saint Mar, and realized that it was in happening not exactly in the same place as Willa Cather's work was, um, but that but that they would make for a really interesting dialogue um, in terms of their their different positionalities with vis-a-vis settler colonialism and how they were thinking about nature. Um, I think maybe the weirdest one, the outlier, is the Heidegger. Um, and readers might be surprised to find that the first chapter is about Heidegger. Um, well, this is one of those things that that happened early in the dissertation research that, that I didn't mention, but also helped reorient me. Um, and I, I just so happened to sit in on a seminar uh, in the comparative literature department taught by a woman named Claudia Brodsky, who is a, she's a scholar of German literature and German philosophy. Um, and I think that seminar was called something like dialectic indifference. Uh, so yeah, we read a lot of Germans um, and, and the German that we read probably the most was Heidegger. We actually spent a lot of that class moving very slowly and very carefully through Heidegger, um, passing back and forth with the German. It was all very exciting. Um, but I had never read Heidegger before that. And I was kind of instantly like I, I, you know, I wouldn't say that I fell in love with Heidegger. It's not the idiom I would use, but I was definitely transfixed. I was transfixed by his writing. Um, and at, at first I didn't really understand why or how he would be valuable to my work. Um, but as I started reading more in environmental philosophy, I quickly realized that Heidegger was maybe more than anyone else, like the favorite philosopher um, he has, especially in his later essays, he has a lot of earthly language, um, talking about you know, like the poetics of the earth and the poetics of dwelling on the earth. He wrote a lot about um, the German poet Hölderlin, who was also very interested in questions of, of home and homecoming and homemaking. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't realize at first how important he would be. And then I sort of fell into a Heidegger hole and he just kept on becoming more and more important. Um, and then I, and then I encountered his, his work again in my research into decolonial studies. And there's a, there's a great writer, Nelson Maldonado Torres, um, who I believe is from originally from Puerto Rico who's written a couple of really astounding essays on Heidegger, sort of breaking down the ways in which um, his work is expressive of the coloniality of being. Um, So yeah, somehow Heidegger slowly made his way in, um, but he's, he's, he's the, I guess the biggest outlier outlier here. And then when it came to doing the Southern African materials, I knew that I, having, having studied African literature, um, for so long, I knew that, that I would need to have a significant chunk, um, that was dealing with some, some part of the continent. Um, and it just so happened that again, on my off time, if there's any off time in graduate school, but in my off time, um, I, I had been reading some of these farm novels uh, and they were all just so extraordinary and all in their different ways. I mean, Olive Schreiner's book, The Story of an African Farm, is this 
strange amalgam of Victorian and like Victorian ideas and and modernist refusals of Victorian ideas. It's a very fragmented and fascinating text. Um, Doris Lessing's book is is also great. Um, Coetzee's book in the Heart of the Country is just kind of mind-bogglingly amazing. And then there are all sorts of other farm novels that I didn't even get to write about, um, including a, a, a recent one by an Afrikaner writer, Marlene van Niekerk. This is a book that deserves to be read more. Um, it's called Agat, A-G-A-A-T. Um, and it's, it's, it's just amazing. So there's this whole, there's this whole tradition of the farm novel um, that I just became really fascinated with. And as I was, realizing in those early chapters on Heidegger, Cather, and, and Lawrence, um, how much of this project was going to center around the concept of home and homemaking um, and how to be at home in the world, um, I was realizing that these farm novels were also all about um, they were also all about being at home in the world. Like how does the farm function as a world in and of itself that provides a stable home in an otherwise unstable landscape? Um, so yeah, I would say that, that this was a very emergent project in the, ter- in terms of how I came to text when I came to them. Um, I definitely did not approach it with, with a specific plan um, <laughs> to write about all these specific texts. It really, it really just, developed as it went that is most delightful to hear um and and i it it comes across as as very organic within the book as well and you're you're obviously not only very well versed with all of these texts but but you you have a lot of passion and and that that comes through um and and it makes the the read just that much better um and so while I'm thinking about all of these um, wonderful thoughts that you have made um, in your book and now going into reading this whole new vein of literature that I didn't know existed, what are, what, what's next for you um, in, your, in your career and, and, um, and just kind of life? Yeah. So in terms of academic stuff, I'm... I have a couple of projects I'm working on. One is is kind of in, in early enough stages where I'm not even sure it's worth talking about, even for myself. Um, but there's another project that is is very much a sequel to this book. Um, it's kind of an unlikely sequel, maybe. Uh, but I'm currently thinking about this concept that I that I end the book with, the concept of exophenomenology. And I'm trying to rethink it or think it as a as a form of speculative perception. So the next book is is about this concept of speculative perception. One of the sort of un, unfinished uh, or not unfinished, but um, but uh, suggested ideas at the very end of unsettling nature that I don't really have space or or the wherewithal. I didn't have the wherewithal at the time to really deal with it. Was this was this question? about alterity that I was talking about earlier and thinking thinking about like what kinds of practices do we have available to us to develop new ways of perceiving the world I think that this is a really hard question um, like how do we learn to perceive the the world anew 
Um, I think it's an urgent question too, especially given that there are so many calls, not just to indulge in apocalyptic thinking, but to, um, to, to actively imagine the world anew. And I think that in order to sort of build a new world or imagine a new, a new um, sort of foundation for the world, I mean, that's very lofty sounding, um, but we also need new sort of regimes of perception, regimes of perception that are, um, that are influenced or conditioned by critical thinking. Um, so just to give an example, one of the things that kind of comes up at the at the end of unsettling nature is is the question of okay, so for for those of us who are settlers on this land, what is it like for us to look around at the world, you know, look at the world around us, this world that has been completely um reorganized by settler colonialism, what would it mean for us to look at this world around us that is so familiar? It's the only, you know, for many of us, it's the only world we've known. Um, What would it be like to look out at that world and actually perceive it as a manifestation of settler coloniality and not just perceive it um, as, as the norm? This is one thing that I've, I've noticed that a lot of indigenous scholars and uh, indigenous writers talk a lot about um, is that that settler coloniality is marked for them everywhere all the time. That's that's in many cases, you know, all they perceive because everything here is conditioned by settler coloniality. But because for so many of us, we don't think about it or it's unmarked, it actually has no affective or perceptual resonance for us. So... I guess one of the questions I'm asking, and and sometimes it feels like an impossible question, is like what kinds of practices could we develop? And these could be very experimental practices to just um, to sort of uh, sharpen our curiosity. But what kind of practices can we invent for ourselves so that we can learn to perceive the settler coloniality of the world around us? Those are, that's the kind of question that I'm I'm thinking about in this in this next book. And honestly, sometimes it feel it does feel impossible, um, but I think it's it's worthwhile because because we do need new ways of perceiving um, that take into account every aspect of difference. I think um, every aspect of our positionality in the world, race, gender, sexuality class, like all of these things can become part of our sensorium or be more, more, in, more fully inform our sensorium. Um, so yeah, sec- specular perception, the critical sensorium, uh, these are the kinds of ideas that I'm playing with. And being a scholar of literature, um, some of that experimentation will happen through literary texts and engagements with poetics. Um, as a dancer and, and someone with a somatic practice, some of it will come through uh, movement um, and guided movement. Uh, and as someone who has been working at an art college uh, for some time now, some of that will also come through engagements with visual art, um, which is also, you know, all these things uh, help us to perceive the world and to perceive it anew. So I'm hope I'm hopeful that I, I can find a way of talking about all of this. Um, yeah, that will be fruitful. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the project that I'm, I'm most invested in now. Yeah. 
Well, that sounds wonderful and challenging and all of the things, but um, I'm excited to, uh, to, see, to see what it looks like when it comes out and hopefully we can have you back on um, when, when, when it does eventually get published. So, um, and on that note, Taylor, thank you so much for, for coming and uh, agreeing to be interviewed today. Um, this was such a delight. Oh, it was such a delight for me as well, Aspen. Thank you very much for taking the time. It's really, it's really a great pleasure and honor. Well, thank you. And um, I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you.